Hi everyone, welcome here. Two things, just before we get into the message here, two things I wanna mention. First of all, don't forget, I keep uh, reminding you every week, Vision Night, Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. And uh, that's when we're gonna unveil the new church name, the church vision, uh, structure, how the board is gonna work, all that sort of stuff. Plus, have opportunities, people to sign up where you wanna get involved, and also time of Q&A. So mark your calendars, Thursday, March 25th, 7 p.m. Uh, you won't wanna miss it. One other thing, really important thing that I want to draw your attention to, um, this coming Monday, March 8th, is actually the International Day of Women. And leading up to that, there is a, there's a really awesome bill that has been introduced to the House of Commons. Actually, it was introduced just over a year ago, February 26, 2020, by an MP from Saskatchewan, uh, a woman named Cathay uh, Wagonall, or Wagontall, sorry. Uh, from Saskatchewan, and it is a bill that she has introduced to the House of Commons uh, that is looking to ban sex-selective abortions in Canada. And we don't have any laws about abortion in Canada right now. Uh, this would be an awesome first step. Uh, it would outlaw, you know, as we come up on uh, International Day of Women, uh, sex-selective abortions, you might be wondering, what is sex-selective abortions? Uh, sex-selective abortions are, are this, this thing that happens around the world and here in Canada where uh, certain, you know, sometimes it's, it could be cultures, could be families, but people don't want to have baby girls. They would prefer to have baby boys. And if they find out that they're pregnant with a baby girl, they'll abort the, the, the baby girl uh, so as not to have a, a girl, and then they can try again to have a boy. And of course, that is just awful. Um, and so uh, Cathay Wagenthal has introduced this bill to our House of Commons here in Canada to pass a law in Canada that would outlaw sex-selective abortions. Uh, I think this is a wonderful opportunity. I think this is something that we could all agree about. Uh, this is something I think that as Christians, I think there's lots of non-Christians. I think there's pro-life people. I think there's even pro-choice people. I think there's a lot of people on both sides of the debate. I think we can, that many Canadians, in fact, I think the statistic is, I think 84% of Canadians would favor a bill that outlaws sex-selective abortions. So this is not something where we have to get mad at everybody and be yelling. Uh, this is something where there's a ton of agreement among Canadians. This is something we can pray about together and that we can petition. There's also an official petition on our Canadian House of Commons website. And I'm going to put the link up there. Um, but uh, this is something I have signed already. And I would encourage as many of you as can. I'm also going to put this on uh, social media tomorrow. And uh, we'll put it out on, I'll note out on the website in a few different places as well. But uh, go to the website, sign it, and I also want us to just take a moment here and pray about this. I think this is, this is a beautiful possibility that could happen here in our country, which would be awesome. I also want to encourage you with one more thing, and that is, you know, when it comes to this abortion thing, we don't help our cause when we are angry and disrespectful and ignorant uh, sounding or ignorant behaving on social media or in person to people about abortion. Can we as Christians, even when we believe passionately in something, we need to be reasonable, we need to be intelligent, we need to be gracious. And so again, on this particular uh, bill to outlaw sex-selective abortions, this is an opportunity for us to reach across the aisle. Lots of people uh, who aren't even, uh, you know, necessarily against abortion can agree. We can agree with many people on this that this would be a good bill. And so I'm going to take a moment right now, and then we're going to jump into the message. I'm going to take a moment right now to pray about this issue, and then I would encourage you this week, sign the petition, and, uh, and let's be in prayer for this important uh, matter. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity, first of all, to preach your word, to teach your word. And Lord, we just lift up to you right now. I thank you for Cathay Wagenthal, MP from Saskatchewan, who has introduced this bill, uh, C-233, uh, to, to outlaw sex-selective abortions here in Canada. Lord Jesus, we pray that this bill would pass. We pray for unity in our country. We pray for, I'm praying for hundreds of thousands of people, 84% of Canadians support a bill like this. We can all agree. Christians and non-Christians, uh, pro-life, uh, not pro-life, Lord, we can all support a bill like this. Jesus, I pray that many people would sign this. I pray that, 
that we could, that as Christians, we would be, um, that we would be, we would present this bill when we're talking about it to our friends and on social media, that we would present it in a way that is intelligent and gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, we'll jump into this message now. And we're going to be talking about the flood, which covers four chapters, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. But before we do, I want to do something that I've been wanting to do since the beginning of the series. You know, this whole series on identity is based on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And some of you might have been wondering, like, why the first 11 chapters? Why not the whole book of Genesis? Why not the first 10 chapters? Why not the first 25 chapters? What's special about the first 11 chapters? Like, is that, was it just, that's just sort of a random section you picked. And, uh, and so I want to show you a few things now because, uh, and then when we get to the end of this message, you're going to love it. Oh man, we're going to, I'm going to show you some, some incredible things about who God is, who you are as, as a person and worldview about the Bible, all that sort of stuff. It's awesome. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the Bible itself and how do we understand it and how do we understand Genesis chapters one to 11. Because Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is a unique section of the Bible, okay? And it's a section unto itself. It's a part of the rest of Genesis. But what I'm going to put up a, a slide there just to help you see this. But Genesis 1 to 11 is a different section, okay? I'm not saying it was written by a different author. You know, Moses wrote, you know, you know all of Genesis or at least, uh, you know, has, has that kind of authority over the whole thing of Genesis, even if other people were helping him put it together. But, but it's different, okay? So Genesis 1 to 11 is different than chapters 12 through 50 of the rest of the book of Genesis, okay? And this is really important to understanding the book, okay? So a few things that are different between Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 to 50, okay? First of all, Genesis 1 to 11, that first section in Genesis, is about the whole human race. It's about everybody. Genesis 12 to 50 is specifically about the nation of Israel. In Genesis 12, we start with the story of Abraham, and that's where we get the story of Abraham, whose descendants then become the nation of Israel, which is what the, you know, the whole Bible is centered around the nation of Israel, okay? But Genesis 1 to 11 is different than the rest of Genesis. It's about the whole world. After that, it's about Israel, okay? Another difference between Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 through 50, okay, different sections of Genesis, is that the events in Genesis 1 to 11 are all events that happened in the distant past to Moses, okay? They happened in the very distant past, long, long, long ago. Moses is not writing about events that he saw or that some of his, you know, ancestors, his great-grandparents saw. When he's writing Genesis 1 to 11, he is writing about events that happened long, 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 long ago in the distant past, okay? Genesis 12 to 50, in fact, you'll see the style, you know, scholars, you know, will notice this right away, is that the, the writing style changes in terms of the kind of narrative that you're getting between Genesis 11, Genesis 12, it changes. Genesis 12 to 50, Moses is writing about events that were close to his life. Many of the events, uh, you know, once you get into the Exodus and stuff, are events that he himself personally witnessed. But with Genesis 12 through 50, Moses is writing about events that happened in his family, in his fairly recent past, okay? The generations that came before him, okay? Uh, Genesis 1 to 11 talks about the creation of, you know, all of the cosmos, the creation of all of humanity, the fall of all humans, okay? So you have creation, you have fall, you have redemption with regards to the entire human race. Genesis 12 through 50 actually deals with the same themes, okay, except with the nation of Israel. You have the creation of the nation of Israel. So in Genesis 1 to 11, you have the creation of the cosmos. In Genesis 12 through 50, you have the creation of Israel. In Genesis you know, 1 to 11, you have the fall of human beings, of mankind. In Genesis 12 through 50, and then into Exodus and beyond, you have the fall of, of the nation of Israel, okay? In Genesis 1 to 11, okay, and as we're gonna see in, uh, in, in the flood story today, you have uh, hints of the redemption of mankind. And in Genesis 12 through 50 and on into the rest of the Old Testament, you see God working to redeem Israel, okay? So Genesis 1 to 11, that first section is ancient, distant past, 
all of humanity. Genesis 12 through 50 is the nation of Israel specific, okay? It's more near history to Moses. It's family history, okay? Uh, one last difference I'm going to point out between Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 to 50 is that Genesis 1 to 11 is also unique from the rest of the Bible in something else, okay? Genesis 1 to 11 is unique from Genesis 12 to 50. It is unique, in fact, from the rest of the Old Testament. It is unique from the New Testament in that Genesis 1 to 11 uh, interacts with other stories in the ancient Near East that existed before Genesis was written. Okay? Genesis 1 to 11, that's very different. Genesis 12 through 50 is unique. It's unique to the nation of Israel. There aren't other stories like that in the other nations. It's different. You know, the New Testament are the unique writings of Christians at the, at the birth of Christianity. Genesis 1 to 11 is unique from the rest of the Bible in that it actually interacts with other stories that were already in place. It interacts with other creation stories. It interacts with other fall stories. It interacts with other flood stories that were already in existence. So that makes Genesis 1 to 11 very unique in the Bible, okay? And that's why uh, when I, when I pick this message uh, series, I just am focusing on Genesis 1 to 11 because Genesis 1 to 11 is a section unto itself. It's a very unique section of scripture, okay? And now this is really important because when you read scripture, we have to remember, you know, we have the Bible bound up like this. And all of us, you know, here in the West, we all own Bibles uh, and we should never take that for granted. Many parts of the world, it's not that easy. Most of us own multiple copies of the Bible. Most of us, you know, if, if you're in a family of six, like, like our family, every member of the family owns their own Bible, which is awesome. But we look at our Bible and it looks like one book. But we have to constantly remind ourselves that this is not like a normal book because what looks like one book, here it's all bound together in one physical book, is actually made up of 66 different books written by 40 different authors. Okay, like this is a series of books, but it's not even a series of books written by one author. It's a huge series of books written by dozens of different authors spread over, you know, uh, like 1,500 years or so to 2,000 years. So even the authors themselves, I mean, the, the oldest book to the youngest book in here is separated by many, many centuries. So this is not one book. This is a, a library. The Bible is a library of many books. Now you say, what, what does this have to do with the flood? What does this have to do with Genesis 1 to 11? What does that do? Okay. Not only is it made up of different books, it's made up of different genres. So in this, you have poetry, you have apocalyptic. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic. That's its own genre that us modern, modern Westerners understand very little about. It's got prophetic books. It's got history books. It's got eyewitness accounts, the four gospels. Uh, each of these is a different genre and you can't read the different genres the same way. If I read a psalm the way I read the Gospels, I'm going to get very, very confused because a poem is very different than an eyewitness account of an event that happened, okay? I mean, and then, I mean, then throw in the Song of Solomon, whatever that is, right? Like, um, you know, you don't read Song of Solomon the way you read the Gospel of John. You don't read the, the, the book of Revelation the way you read, uh, you know, the book of Matthew or the book of Isaiah or, or some of those books or the book of First Kings, that sort of thing. Okay, so now I want to just talk about the Gospels for just a moment because this is really important because then I'm going to say some things about Genesis 1 to 11 that are going to be really, really important because if we don't understand what these books are, we won't understand properly what they're saying to us and what they mean, okay? So I want to say some very clear things about the Gospels, and then I want to draw a distinction to Genesis 1 to 11, so that when we read Genesis 1 to 11, we don't read it the same way as we read the Gospels, okay? So let me tell you, the Gospels, four books in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay? Now the Gospels are are very unique in the Bible in that they are eyewitness accounts. And, there, and there's four of them. So you get four different eyewitness accounts of the same 
story, the story of the life of Jesus, the birth, the death, and the resurrection. Okay? And all of them are very clearly, I mean, it is repeated throughout the New Testament that those gospel stories are eyewitness accounts of events that really, that, that happened as they're recorded. Okay? I just want to read you a couple of passages. It's really important as a foundation. Okay? So, uh, first one we want to look at here is, uh, I think this is from 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And I want you to notice that, okay, what we have seen, what we have heard, we have touched, okay? The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. So I want you to see, this is emphasized throughout the New Testament. I could show you passage after passage after passage. That the apostles say, this, the Jesus story is not a made-up story. We saw it. We're telling you things we saw, we heard, we touched, we were there. Okay? Look at Acts chapter 5, 30 and 32. Peter says this with all the apostles there. He's preaching to the, high, the, 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 the council, the leadership council there of the Jews. And he says this. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, and again, I could show you many, many passages. I'm just going to show you one more, but literally we could look. This is throughout the New Testament, okay? When you read the Gospels, you are reading eyewitness accounts. You're, 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 you're reading uh, details, like a newscast almost, like a documentary in some ways, of, of the life of Jesus and, and what happened, Okay? And our whole Christian faith is based on the events of the, of that happened in the Gospels, in Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his miracles, his birth. Our whole faith is based on those events that they happen the way we read about them. Okay? Really, really important. So 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll just read you a few verses here. This is Paul talking now. We've seen Peter. We've seen John. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, so eyewitness, so this is not just something made up, then to the twelve, he appeared to the twelve apostles, then he appeared to more than, uh, get rid of the string, to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So I want you to notice over and over again in the New Testament, I'm going to just, I just repeat this for a few minutes. Over and over again in the New Testament, we read the events of Jesus' life as they're recorded in the, in, in the Gospels. These are eyewitness accounts. These are things that People witnessed. You can go and check it out. That's what Paul's saying here. You can go and check these things out. They happened. The resurrection, the crucifixion, the birth of Jesus. These happened. You can talk to these people. Here's who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. Here's a list of witnesses. Okay? The Gospels are rooted, very rooted. It's a specific type of writing. It's an eyewitness account. And then Paul says in verse 17, he finishes that off by saying, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if the things that we read in the Gospels about Jesus' life, about his death, about his resurrection, about his birth, if those things didn't actually literally happen, then the Christian faith is just bunk. It's, it's just bunk. It doesn't exist. There's nothing real to it. You know, there's no eternal life. Then all of it is bunk. If this, the, the, you know, if the, if, the, if the facts of Jesus' life are not real facts, if they're just some kind of a myth, if they're just some kind of a fairy tale, a fable, then the Christian faith is worthless and we may as well go and believe something else or you know, nothing at all, whatever we want. That's what Paul is saying, okay? It's futile, okay? So when we think of the Gospels, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, okay? We read them very literally, okay? We take them very literally. Now, the question is, should we read everything in the Bible the same way we read the Gospels? And the answer is obviously no. Okay? Now, we want to read, we have to read the Bible according to what each book is meant to be. 
But let me just give you an example. So Psalm 23, one to two, very famous passage. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes, I shall not want, okay? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now the question is, is that Psalm 23, one to two, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, David says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now question, Should is that passage true? And the answer is, you know, it's the word of God. It's inerrant in everything it means to teach. So when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it makes me lie down in green pastures. That's true. That's the eternal word of God. It's true. But now let me ask you this. Did it actually happen? Did God make David? And of course, I know this is ridiculous. And you know it's ridiculous. But I'm, I'm, I'm making a point, And then we're going to apply it. Because we have, to be, we have to read the Bible for what the authors in each book intended for us to get. So now the question is... Did, First of all, was God actually David's shepherd? Was David actually a sheep? And did God actually make David go and lie down in green pastures? And the answer is uh, no. Okay? You know, God didn't show up to David and say, Okay, my little sheep, now it's time to go lie down in the grass today. Okay? This is poetry. Now that, and of course we all understand that. That's obvious to us all. It's it's poetry. The different genres in the Bible have to be treated, treated within their genre. So no, David didn't actually lie down in a pasture. And yet we know it's 100% true. It's not communicating to us an eyewitness account. It's not like the Gospels. It's communicating truths to us about who God is. He's like a shepherd to us. This is poetry. And we are like sheep. David saying to him, I am like a sheep to you. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. It's not saying David actually lies down in the grass every now and then because God tells him to. It's saying that God gives him rest. He gives his soul rest. Okay, but that, so it's just as true. Psalm 23, 1 to 2 is just as true as the gospel accounts are true. But they communicate that truth in different ways. When I read the gospel accounts, Jesus rose from the dead. I say, that happened. When I read Psalm 23, 1 to 2, I don't say that happened. I say that's who God is. This is what he does for me, okay? Now, Genesis 1 to 11 is a little more tricky. Psalm 23, 1 to 2 is clearly poetry. The gospel accounts in the New Testament are clearly eyewitness accounts. So the question is, and clearly Genesis 1 to 11 contain history, they have historical kernels. There's absolutely no question about it. But the question is, is Genesis 1 to 11 the same as the gospel accounts? Is that, what the, is that what Moses intended them to be? And the answer is no. Moses didn't eyewitness the events of Genesis 1 to 11. Okay? So it is history, and it has history, but the thing you have to understand about Genesis 1 to 11, now I'm going to explain this all out because... Everything in Genesis 1 to 11 is true, just like everything in Psalm 23 is true, and everything in the Gospels is true. But what are the truths that God is communicating to us? What are the truths that Moses intended for us, that the Holy Spirit through Moses intended for us to have through Genesis 1 to 11? Okay? And, and, and so there is history in Genesis 1 to 11, but it's history wrapped in some other very important things. Because actually, in Genesis 1 to 11, if you just read it as history, you're going to miss some stuff. Because Genesis 1 to 11 wraps some of the historical stuff in some much bigger things that have a much bigger message for us today. And when we actually allow ourselves to see those bigger things, the truth comes alive in powerful ways. And we don't get caught up in some of the details. But let me help you uh, understand this by, by using uh, an analogy that we all understand, okay? Uh, human beings throughout human history, we have always loved stories, okay? Humans, we're no different. In that sense, we're no different in modern times than people were in ancient times. And throughout all of human history, we human beings, our brains are wired for stories, okay? And nowadays... Our favorite kind of stories, the most popular kind of stories, are the stories we see in movies or, or shows, okay? So we love to watch movies. We also, you know, uh, uh, to a lesser extent, people love, I love, my family loves, many people love uh, to read books. But even books, in ancient times, they didn't even have books, okay? 
But the, but it's still true that in ancient times they loved stories and we love stories today. Now, of course, we know when it comes to movies, there's many different kinds of stories. So when it comes to movies, there's many different genres. I, I've talked about this a number of times in, uh, in the last couple of months, okay? But there's different genres, right? You have romantic comedy, you have action, you have, you know, Western, you have sci-fi, you have documentary, you have uh, based on a true story. I mean, and on and on and on and on. There's many different genres of stories. And each genre has its own rules. Okay, so when you watch a sci-fi movie, there's certain rules, you know, unspoken rules that that works for a sci-fi movie that don't work for, say, a romantic comedy or a documentary for sure or, or, or an action movie or, or a based on a true story, okay? Um, now, if we even compared a couple of these different genres, imagine for a moment, my wife and I, LaDawn, we love to watch true stories, inspiring true stories. You know, sometimes you watch true stories and they're not that great. But we love to watch inspiring true stories. Now, here's the thing. There's a difference, though, between a true story and a, doc and a documentary series. Isn't, isn't that true? Um, for example, if you're into American history at all, this is just, just pulling this, you know, as an example. Um, if you wa would watch a movie about Abraham Lincoln, that's going to be a lot different than if you watch, you know, a 10-part documentary series on Abraham Lincoln. You know, both of them are, are supposed to be true, but the genre of documentary wants to fill your head with facts. It wants to fill your head with facts and context and everything that happened. But a movie about Abraham Lincoln wants to focus on some aspect of his life and inspire you with that aspect of his life, right? So movies tend to simplify things. Documentaries tend to complicate things. They're very different genres. If you want to be inspired, generally you want to watch a true story. If you want to learn a bunch of facts, you watch a documentary. Those are different genres, okay? Very different genres, okay? Um, you know, and I could use another analogy. Again, I'm just building this, and when we get through this, you're going to see what I mean. Because if we don't understand the what, what are we reading in Genesis 1 to 11? We're not going to be able to receive from the Holy Spirit what God, the truth that God wants to give us. What genre are these things? Another analogy I could use is one that we can all relate to, okay? We all know, if you're, you know, wherever you are watching this, uh, this message, we all know the difference between good storytellers, isn't this true, and bad storytellers. Okay, it, it, this is true, okay? Um, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand because the bad storyteller in your life you, you might be in the room with you right now. Might be your spouse, could be a child. But isn't it true that there's good storytellers, there's bad storytellers? How many of you, and for sure, if you're older than five years old, this has happened to you, okay? Um, that a bad storyteller has started to tell you a story about something in their life. And it is all you can do to pay attention. And the whole time they're telling the story, reams of facts are coming out. They, they're not making things up. They're not lying to you. They're not deceiving you. They're telling you true things. But as they tell you the story, they overwhelm you with facts. They don't take a breath. They don't give you a chance to breathe or interact with the story. They, they just babble facts. And they might go on and on. It might feel like hours. It might only be 15 minutes or it might be half an hour, but they have the ability to take something exciting and make it absolutely unbelievably painful to listen to. And so they'll tell, a bad story will tell you, a bad storyteller will tell you facts after facts after facts, but you know what? You'll be wondering inside. You'll know a bad storyteller and there'll be a question in your mind. I've asked it many times. And no doubt some of you have done it to me because we all, we all probably do some bad storytelling at times. But when you're listening to a bad storyteller and they're just whipping out the fact, 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 fact. And then at one point, at some point in the conversation, you're subconsciously or consciously thinking inside, what is the point? Right? Or get to the point. Some of you maybe wonder that right now or during when I'm preaching, right? Get to the point. What's the point? But you know, when a bad storyteller is talking to you, you're wondering, okay, what is the point of this? You're telling me all kinds of true things. But where is this going? What am I supposed to get out of this? See, a, a good story needs more than just lots of true facts. 
Now a good storyteller, uh, and, and these are rare, it's a gift. Um, but those of you, if you've ever met a good storyteller, they can tell you something from their lives and it might take them only two or three minutes, but they'll tell it to you and at the end of it, you'll be encouraged or you'll laugh or you'll learn something, but there'll be a clear point. They will arrange the facts, they will organize the facts and tell them in such a way, but they'll leave out extra stuff, they'll leave out context, they'll do whatever, but they will tell you the story in such a way that you can follow it because it's going somewhere, you know it has a point. Okay, that's a good storyteller. Now, great leaders, you know, actually someone who's really good at this, uh, I grew up in the home of a, of a good storyteller. My dad, those of you who know my dad, I uh, grew up in, in, a, in a home. He was a pastor, all, you know, basically all my life growing up. And then uh, I pastored under him for a number of years. And he's a, he's a brilliant storyteller, okay? And if you've been around my dad for any amount of time, there are stories that you will hear over and over and over again. But the thing is, you don't actually get tired of hearing them because they're great stories. And the reason, you, though, you don't get tired of hearing them is not because of that they have all these facts in them. The reason you don't get tired of hearing them is because they have a point. And each story communicates something, a value, usually values. You know, my dad actually, we actually ask him at our family gatherings, we actually ask him to tell stories about his life and about the family's life and history to the kids. And so we'll all sit there. There's a whole pile of grandkids and stuff sitting on the floor. And my dad will tell stories and we ask him to. He, do, he doesn't ask us that he can do it. We ask him to do it because we want to pass on that history to our kids, his grandkids. Um, but he will tell stories. And of course, when you're telling stories to kids, they can't be long stories. So he, you know, you, you lose their attention. So he'll tell a series of stories that might be three or four or five minutes. But he will shrink that big story down to something that can be repeated over and over and over again and that will communicate some kind of core value that we want as part of our identity as a family. You know, something about hard work or trusting God or following God's leading or stepping out in faith. These kinds of values that we want in our family, that we want our kids to have. And he will tell these stories over and over and over again and we love them and the kids love them and they remember them and they soak in the values, okay? Now, let me tell you that, uh, something about that, okay? Stories that you repeat over and over and over again, okay? And you tell them for a very specific purpose to communicate specifically identity or values. There's actually, we can call that something. And it's actually gonna surprise you just a little bit because we think of this word wrong a lot of the time. But some scholars would call this, in fact, C.S. Lewis is one of them, but some scholars would call this historical myth-making. Okay, historical myth-making. Now, the moment I say the word myth, some of you are freaking out. Oh, a myth is a fairy tale. It's actually not true, okay? Uh, sometimes in modern usage, we use the word myth for fairy tale. But the word myth actually doesn't mean fairy tale. It doesn't mean not true. A myth can be a story that you tell over and over and over again. So it's been something that can be easily remembered, easily repeatable, that communicates, but here's the important part about what a myth is in this case, how I'm using it. It is a story that is based in history that communicates identity and values. Who is God? Who are people? Who are we? What are we like? What do we do? Okay? We could call it historical myth-making. That does not mean untrue, that means these are stories. Now, here's the thing, okay? Now, let me bring this into the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they had this genre. This is a huge genre in the ancient Near East. It's a huge genre still today. We just don't think of it that way. We don't use that word. But it was a huge genre in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have the internet to store all kinds of facts and information. They didn't have CD discs, and they didn't have documentaries. They didn't have encyclopedias. They didn't have books. Okay? The only people that could write was maybe the king and a few of the top priests, and they would have to chisel stuff into stone you know, tablets and things like that. Um, so you know, the vast, 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 vast majority living in ancient times could not read or write. Okay? So they didn't have ways of storing huge amounts of information. So how, so how did they pass on information? Okay? They pass them on in the form of stories but specifically, not just random stories. Nobody has the brain space 
for a 10-hour story with thousands or hundreds of facts. Nobody has a brain space for that. And, and in those days, knowing a bunch of facts didn't help you to live. So they had very specific stories that would get re re repeated over and over again. Every nation would have its own stories. Its own stories about uh, creation. Its own stories about uh, how the nation came to be. Its own stories about how the king came to be. And all of these stories communicated who is God? Who are we? Who is the king? Uh, how do we please the king? How do we please the gods? How, what are our values as a nation? These are very important stories. And everything they told pretty much any important story they told, they would bring God into it. They would often bring the king into it. They would bring in human identity. Every story, like they didn't have so many, so much room for stories, information that they could have all the genres we have today. Every one of their stories would ultimately be interpreted as what does this tell us about God? What does this tell me, tell us about me? What does this tell us about who we are as a nation? What does this tell us about who the king is and what our responsibilities are? Okay. Now in the ancient Near East, uh, you know, I made the analogy before of some of the stories we tell nowadays. In their days, they had a, they had a bit more leeway with the facts. Okay, they 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 would use symbolic numbers and symbolic names, and they would do all kinds of things to make their theological points, even when their stories were based in in historical reality. Now, this is where it's starting to get really interesting because I'm still not I still haven't talked about Genesis one to eleven specifically. But this is where this starts to get really interesting because here's the thing you have to, to know. So Moses is writing, the, you know, he comes in with the book of Genesis. And he's writing these first 11 chapters. The chapters 12 through 50, he's writing family history. And then in the Exodus and on, he's writing about stuff he himself witnessed and lived through. Okay? But Genesis 1 to 11, uh, he's writing about some stuff. And, here, and he's writing about things in Genesis 1 to 11 that all of the other nations have stories like this. Okay, this is just a fact. All of the nations in Mesopotamia, in the ancient Near East, all of the nations in the ancient Near East had catastrophic flood stories. They all did, okay? Now, when we modern, you know, Westerners read our Bibles, we, we often don't realize the context. We don't realize that there were these other nations in that time, that these other nations had flood stories as well. So we just read the Bible and we just think to ourselves, okay, so we, we think of God giving these first 11 chapters to Moses in a vacuum. We think to ourselves, you know, Moses had never heard of a flood before. And so now, but God just wants to tell him about this really important event about the flood. And so God's like to know, or God's like to Moses, hey, you got to know about the, this flood. There was this huge event called the flood. I got to tell you about it. And actually it's very different. Moses and the Israelites, because there are tons, there are tons of flood stories in all of the nations around Israel. Many of them have many similarities to the biblical flood story. Many of those stories are much older than the Bible by hundreds and hundreds of years, by centuries, okay? These stories were being told by, to everybody in, in, in Mesopotamia had stories and had heard stories and knew the stories of this flood, this catastrophic flood that had come, Okay? So when Moses is writing the biblical story of the flood, this is not like, uh, you know, when he writes in the Exodus about things that he did to Pharaoh that he saw. This is not like the Gospels when the, when the apostles are writing about things they actually saw and touched and heard and were there. Moses, and Moses also isn't writing in a vacuum. It's not like God's coming down to him and saying, hey, Moses, there was this flood a long time ago that you've never heard about. No, no, no. Moses has grown up. And the people of Israel have grown up in an area where they all know about this catastrophic flood, okay? Now, the thing is, with the floods, you know, why would God have Moses then rewrite the story of this flood? That's, that's the question. Um, is, is this like, you know, is this like the documentary, you know, genre where God is coming to Moses and he's saying, okay, look, we have got to get the facts straight, you need to know how much water, you need to know how much of this and how long and all sorts of stuff. Is God coming to Moses and saying, we have got to fix the facts? Or, but what, like, why is this so important to God that I'm going to, you, you need to rewrite. You need to write about the flood. We need, everybody else has a flood story. You need to have a flood story. Why would God be so concerned to do that? And the answer is because of why 
the ancient peoples told their stories? And again, the answer is because of identity. Every one of their stories was interpreted in terms of what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about us? What does this tell us about people? How do we please the gods? All sort of stuff. And so the people of Israel are living in an area, and Moses is living in an area um, where they know this story of a flood, but they know it in a very warped way. And I don't mean warped in terms of the facts, although no doubt that's included. I mean warped in terms of what those stories communicated about who God is and who people are, okay? In terms of who God is and who people are. Um, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment here. I just need to take it just a moment here because I, I want to compare. Because when you actually begin to compare the biblical story of the flood to the flood stories of the ancient Near East, you're going to start to see some powerful, eternal, inspired, inerrant, incredible truths that we stand on still today that are foundational to the Bible, um, but that come that actually just come out to us when we see how different the biblical story of the flood is from the stories of the ancient Near East, okay? And so I'm going to put a, a, a chart up there uh, for you. I'm just going to look uh, here for just a moment, and I'm going to just take you through a whole bunch of things. So first, I'm just going to take you through a bunch of similarities and differences, and then after that, I want to show you three things, three powerful, eternal um, truths that God is speaking to us through the story of who he is, identity. This is identity, who he is and who we are in Genesis 1 to 11 and specifically in the flood story. So let's just compare the biblical flood story to some of the Babylonian flood accounts because we could compare it to many different accounts because the different nations all had their own accounts. Okay, so we'll just throw up some similarities. I'm going to throw up a chart there. And we'll just zip through a bunch of stuff. So first of all, the divine characters, okay? In the biblical flood, who is the one sending the flood? He is the one true God of the Bible. One God, okay? In the Babylonian flood accounts, you have multiple gods. They're planning together. They're conspiring. They're arguing with each other, okay? Very different. They have, there's disagreements. There's betrayal, Okay? Human hero. In the biblical flood, the human hero is Noah. In the Babylonia flood, Babylonian uh, flood accounts, the, uh, the hero is a guy by the name of Utnapishtim. Okay? Don't need to remember that. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. Reason for the flood. Because remember, the point of these stories was identity. And the reason God wants Moses to rewrite the story is because the identity that is of, about God and about humans that is being taught in these other stories is radically wrong and God wants to correct it. He wants to give them the right identity. Reason for the flood. In the biblical flood, the reason is, I'm going to show you some scriptures in Genesis 6 in just a moment, is the extreme violence, corruption, and evil of mankind. That's really important in the biblical flood account. People have gotten so bad, I'm going to show this to you, people have gotten so bad, there's so much violence, there's so much corruption, that God has to do something to fix the problem. In the Babylonian flood accounts, you want to know what the reason is for the flood? Human beings have literally, and I got it in quotation marks there because it's actually the English translation of what it is in, the ta in some of the tablets, is that human beings have gotten too noisy for the gods. Literally, in the Babylonian flood accounts, as people are sharing the, the accounts of the flood, the picture of God and humans is that the gods are annoyed. People keep praying to them, annoying them, doing stuff that is bothering them. The human beings are too much work. And so the gods have a council and they say, we've got to wipe these people out. They're, they're not worth it. By the way, think of the difference in how you view God, how you view yourself in those two stories. In one story, you have an all-powerful God who... Finally, has to clean. people have gotten so bad, he has to do something to deal with the amount of evil. And the other story is the gods are annoyed because human beings are a bother. Think of the, the identity difference, how you feel about yourself as a human being, how you feel about God. Salvation of the hero. In the biblical uh, flood story, um, the salvation of Noah is part of God's plan all along. Right from the beginning. Noah, build a boat. I'm going to rescue you. Do you know how it works in the Babylonian flood accounts? <laughs> One of the gods from the council, Ea, I think that's how you say his name, Ea, Ea 
secretly goes, because the gods actually want to wipe everyone out. Ea secretly goes to Utnapishtim and tells him that a flood's coming because of the other gods and secretly saves him. So you see, in the biblical flood account, God doesn't want to wipe out human beings. He has to deal with evil, but he doesn't want to wipe out human beings. So right from the beginning, he has a plan of salvation for human beings, and he saves Noah. That's all part of the plan. The Babylonian flood accounts, uh, actually the salvation of mankind is an accident that comes because one of the gods secretly helps one of the human beings. Uh, building of the boat. In the biblical flood, the, the ark is a huge rectangular boat, 450 feet long, 75 feet high, 45 feet wide, three levels. By the way, uh, that would be way bigger, way, 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 way bigger than any wooden boat that has ever been built by man, including in the 1800s by the great wooden British shipmakers and uh, American shipmakers. Um, the, the largest, in fact, the, lo the longest wooden ship ever built by one of the modern powers was probably about 100 feet shorter than the ark. And, the, and it had to be braced with metal, which Noah would never have had access to. And it twisted so much because the thing is, as soon as you go over, you know, somewhere around 300 feet long on a wooden boat, the thing will twist because wood isn't strong enough and it leaks. They actually, in the, in the biggest wooden boat that was ever built that was like 100 feet shorter than the ark, it twisted so much that they had to run the pumps continually all the time and eventually the thing sank and, and uh, killed everyone on board, okay? And you say, what does that mean for the Noah story? Um, maybe God did a miracle, but there's no way, apart from a miracle, there's no way Noah had the technology to build a boat that big. It would have taken him uh, centuries and centuries to build it. He wouldn't have had the technology. He would have had to clear whole forests of wood. Now, maybe God did a miracle, okay? Supernaturally, and he supernaturally uh, built the boat, but that technology didn't exist at that time, okay? Um, and I just don't, I don't build my faith on that stuff because we're getting, and we're getting to that too. The point of this story is to communicate who God is and who people are. Now, in the Babylonian flood account, uh, very interesting. The boat was shaped exactly like a temple. It's a ziggurat. Now, I don't know if you know what a ziggurat is, but if you've ever seen those kind of pyramid-like temples in, uh, that are covered by jungles now in Central America, that's a ziggurat. It's essentially a pyramid with steps that goes up like this, kind of like a triangle. The Babylonian flood account, the boat was 100 feet, 180, again, it was also massive, 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 180 feet long, 180 feet wide, 180 feet tall, shaped like a temple, like a ziggurat. It's a big, big floating ziggurat with seven levels, okay? Duration of the flood, biblical flood, 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, Babylonian flood account, six days and nights, okay? Land, boat lands on Mount Ararat, Babylonian flood account, uh, boat lands on Mount Nasir, both of them are in, you know, modern day Turkey. Uh, sending of the birds in the biblical flood account, Moses sends out a raven and then three a dove three different times in the Babylonian flood accounts. Uh, Anapishtim sends out a raven, a swallow, and a dove, okay? So you can see lots of, you can see, Moses is familiar with these stories. He's very familiar with them. They interact. They're the same in some places. They're very close. In other places, they're very different. Those differences are really important. Really, really important. Sacrifices. In the biblical flood, uh, Abraham gives a sacrifice of thanksgiving, okay? In the Babylonian flood, Utnapishtim uh, offers a sacrifice of animals and it literally says, and, and I could put quotations around it, that the gods swarmed around his sacrifice like flies because they were hungry. In the end, they were really glad that Ea, the one god, had saved Utnapishtim because they forgot that they need the sacrifices of human beings to feed them and they were hungry, okay? So again, think of the picture of God that, the gods that portrays. Think of the picture of humans that portrays, that the gods need our sacrifices for food. Blessing of the hero. In the blessing at the end of the biblical flood, God promises to spare mankind. Very gracious. Uh, in the Babylonian flood account, uh, Utnapishtim is the only one who gets a blessing. He, the one human, it's not a blessing for all of mankind, but Utnapishtim is granted eternal life, uh, immortality, and, uh, and that even is only given to him grudgingly because 
because the main gods are still mad that the one god saved Adapishtim. So, let's finish with three points. Okay? This story, we've looked at some similarities and differences between the flood account of the Bible and the Babylonian flood accounts. This is the inspired word of God. Everything it teaches us is true. So God spoke down to Moses into a particular genre. And everything he spoke to Moses within that genre, he was changing Moses and the Israelites' picture of who God is and who human beings are in the inspired, eternal, inerrant word of God. This story is true. So what does it communicate to us about God and human beings? First of all, there is only one God and he is sovereign and all-powerful. We've talked about that in this series. But there's not a bunch of squabbling gods who disagree and one of them, you know, and they're fighting and then one of them is saving a human being and the other ones don't really want him to. There's none of that. There's one God. He's all-powerful. In the Babylonian flood accounts, the the gods actually, the flood is bigger than they intended for it to be. They actually get scared at one point because they made the flood too big. It's like it's out of control. They're not sovereign. In the flood account of the Bible, God is absolutely in control. He's in charge. There's no petty squabbling. This is who God is. We can trust him. That's number one. Number two. I love these next two points. In the biblical flood account, you want to know identity of God, identity of who he is? God is just. In the biblical flood account, he only punishes when he absolutely has to and only because evil has gotten so bad that he doesn't have any other choice. That's literally how the biblical flood portrays this flood story. Okay? Totally different than the Babylonian flood accounts where the gods are annoyed with human beings, where human beings are a bother to the gods. Let me read this to you, Genesis 6, 11 to 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now look at that. Filled with violence. Okay? Filled with violence. God doesn't want to do it. And again, in the Babylonian flood accounts, people are just annoying, okay? In Genesis, people have gotten so violent. It's awful. People are suffering. God has to deal with it. Then it says this in verses 5 to 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth And it grieved him to his heart. Notice how in Genesis, God is actually, God is pained at the pain of humankind. He's pained at our evil. He's pained that this flood has to come. He's pained. He grieves. In the ancient Near East flood accounts, in the Babylonian flood accounts, there is no evidence of grief. There's just pettiness and anger. Imagine living with a picture of God where he is petty, where he doesn't care about us, where we're an annoyance to him. Contrast that with the God we see in the flood accounts. He grieves. He doesn't want to punish us. That's the last resort. He doesn't want to deal with evil, with pain. He, he, and he grieves over the wickedness and he grieves over the punishment. This is revolutionary. This is the God we serve and it's already there in the Old Testament. Third thing we learn about God in a flood story, 100% true, the inerrant word of God. God's grace, God's grace is huge in in the flood story. He promises to bless, protect, and save all of humankind in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. I'm gonna now read to you my favorite verse in the entire flood story. So Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. I'm going to read to you my favorite verse in the entire thing, okay? And it's here, it's verse 21 of chapter 8. So the flood is over. Moses has come out of the ark and he's offering a sacrifice to God. 
And it says this, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for, now this is interesting, okay? So this is up on the screen, but not the rest of the verse yet. Because I just want to, I want to try your attention to it. Because for, so God says in his heart, I will never curse the ground. I will never do this, you know, flood thing again because of something. Now, the question is why? Why will God never do this again? Is it because human beings have finally got their act together? Is it because Noah is such a good guy that now, you know, everybody's going to be good. And, and so God says, now because you're all going to be good, I'm going to promise to protect you and take care of you. And the answer is no. I want you to read this next part. The next part of this verse doesn't even make sense. That's how crazy it is. Look what it says. God said, I will never again curse the ground because of man for, because look at this, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? That doesn't even make sense. He just said, I'm going to, to never curse the ground again. I'm never going to send a flood on the earth again because you're still evil. In other words, human beings didn't change before the flood. Huge problems. Human beings are messed up. After the flood, human beings are still messed up. And yet, unlike all of the other flood stories surrounding the nation of Israel, the God of the Bible looks down and says, I love them so much, I'm actually, gonna, I'm actually going to give a promise. I'm going to promise never that something like that could ever happen again. You know what that is? That is grace. It has nothing to do with how we human beings have earned something or deserve something. It has nothing to do with that. It's right in the verse. I will never again curse the ground of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Even though man is evil, I'm still going to give them this promise. That's great. That's grace. The interesting thing to me is when Moses writes this, Jesus is still a thousand, five hundred, you know, well over a thousand years away. Moses has no idea about Jesus and the cross. He has no idea about it. And yet here in this story already, we see that this is the same God at work. The same God who would get up on a cross and die for us. In fact, in spite of the fact that we do not deserve it, is the same God. And he had to, he was passionate to retell. He said to Moses, we have got to retell this flood story because everybody's picture of me is completely messed up. And everybody's picture of what human beings are to me is completely messed up. They think they're worthless. They think I'm easily annoyed. And it's not true. I love human beings. And I make promises to human beings even when we don't deserve it. Now the Jews in New Testament times, actually uh, had this idea that uh, Noah preached to all of his neighbors to tell them that a flood was coming and they could join him on the ark and be saved. If Noah did that, then the story of the flood really is a picture of the cross. Because all those people would have had to do is just believe. All they would have had to do is just believe Noah's message and walk onto that ark. They couldn't build the ark themselves. They couldn't know about the flood on their own. They couldn't save themselves. All they had to do was believe Noah's word, walk onto the ark, and they would have been saved. And the same is true of the cross. You and I can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't wash away the shame of our sins and our misbehavior. And so Jesus gets up on a cross and he says, I know you can't do it for yourself, but all you have to do is get on the boat. All you have to do is say yes. You don't have to earn it. Just walk on the boat. Just believe that I can save you. Walk on the boat and I will save you from death and destruction. Now, some of you Christians... You already realize that in terms of salvation, but you're still carrying around a load of shame. You don't feel worthwhile to God. You don't feel good enough for God. You don't feel good enough for anyone. You just never feel good enough. You always feel shame. You need to meditate on this story of the flood. This God who says, I promise to take care of you and save you, even though the intentions of your heart and the intentions of mankind's heart 
is always towards evil. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the flood story that tells us about who you are. Tells us about how much we matter to you. Tells us about your grace. Help us to receive that grace deep within our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.